0: Uh, Father, this morning we just do come, and we're here not because there's nothing else to do. We're here because we want to learn more about what you would have for us in life. We're here to uh, to look to your your word, the scriptures, and to see truth. We're here, hopefully, to change and be changed. And I just pray in this environment with others and with the community and with the fellowship. Um, that we would be able to connect and walk out of here refreshed and restored with a new vision um, just for what we can do in life and, and how we can shape our, our thoughts and our attitudes. And I just pray for this short time that we have, that you would just bless it and that you would use it. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Sorry about the lights. There's a whole lot of house lights out um, that we need to get uh somehow change the bulbs change or something like that so I'll try and avoid the dark spot and stuff like that and then the big screen we're supposed to have that next week so if you don't like squinting at the smaller one just hang in there for a week and we'll get there but we're starting a series on the parables uh that's going to take us most of the way through um Easter Two weeks before Easter, on March 9th, we're going to have a child dedication. So if you have uh, a baby or child uh, that you'd like dedicated, um, kind of under the age of eight, uh, in that range, on March 9th, we're doing a a child dedication service. And so just let us know by emailing it or writing it on something or talking to me. Um, But this will take us, the parable series will take us through Easter. And this morning, we're in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. And it's a good chunk, so I'm just going to read it. Now, just a little bit of the background. If you're familiar with the rich young man that comes to Jesus and says, Hey, I'm a good guy. Um, what do I need to do to inherit kind of uh, the kingdom and, and eternal life? And Jesus says, obey all the commands. And he says, you know, got it, done it. You know, I got all the check boxes filled out. And then Jesus says, oh, but one, one more thing. Go and, go and sell all that you have. And give it to the poor. Now, so this guy is going to be coming in and he's going to think, the reason I have all this stuff is because I am so good. God's blessing me because I'm so good. And he's going to feel, in some sense, a a right to have all these possessions. And they're his and it's mine. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, you really want to inherit eternal life? Then go get rid of your stuff that you think you have a right to. Give it to the poor. Live the kind of life I'm living Okay, one of mission and one of ministry and of serving. And then you will, you will have this inheritance, this eternal life. And the guy goes away sad and Jesus is like, man, it's really hard for rich people. It's, it's really hard because of these two different things. And so this is kind of what's come before the parable where we're at now. And then beginning in beginning of verse 20, Jesus still continues to talk about the kingdom of heaven because he really wants us to get what's going on with salvation. It's huge. And, and there's a lot of confusion, a lot of questions, and he wants us to get it clearly. And it says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. And he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now, a denarius is what a Roman soldier would have earned in a day. Okay, So going out and hiring day laborers means they don't have a steady job. This is kind of the bottom of society, the people that are going day-to-day trying to get picked up and hired on. And so this is the bottom of society. They're waiting for someone to hire them um, to feed their family. There is no welfare system. And the guy goes out, hires them, and offers them a wage of a Roman soldier for a day, and it's a good deal. And he uh, agreed to pay them that, and he sent them into his vineyard. And about the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever's right. So they went. Now, it's important that we just, because in our American mind, we hear the words doing nothing and we think these people are lazy. Um, We think they're lazy people, but this is not a a lazy group of people that are just loitering because if that's what they were doing, they wouldn't have gone into the vineyard. Does that make sense? These are people that are standing around looking for work. When my wife and I lived in California we were in this little um, apartment complex, and right in the parking lot above our apartment complex was where uh, a lot of, of immigrants would gather trying to get picked up for day work. And there'd be 50, sometimes 75, and, and they were desperate to get work for the day. When a car would pull into that parking lot, they would just descend or flock to that car, hoping that the window would come down and someone would offer them work for the day. Okay, And if there was somebody that was still sitting out there at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, they were hungry to work. They hadn't found anyone. There wasn't an opportunity yet. And they were desperate to get out and work. They're doing nothing right now, but it's not out of laziness. Um, it's because there hasn't been an offer that's come along. And so it's the same kind of a situation. And this, this guy goes out and there's others that are doing nothing that haven't been picked up yet. He offers to pay them whatever's right and he sends them into his vineyard. And he went out again about the 6th hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the 11th hour, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? And, and the answer is, because no one has hired us. Verse 8, uh, he said to them, you go also and work in my vineyard. Verse 8, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages. Beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Uh, let's stop there for a second too. It's an interesting, you know, that doesn't seem like a big that big of a deal, but in several places in the in the Mosaic Law and the Old Testament, God basically commands people that if they're going to live in his society, this just society that he's kind of mapping out for Israel, you're responsible to pay people at the end of each day. I mean, over and over again, it says you pay them at the end of the day. You don't send them home wondering whether they're going to get paid. You don't, you don't let them think they're going to be able to go home and put food on the table and then not pay them. Um, you pay them what they have earned at the end of the day because that's what's due to them. And so, this landowner here does what is right. He's a just and right landowner. He pays them at the end of the day. The Jewish ear would have heard that, the people that Jesus was speaking to, and they would have been thinking, this is a pretty stand up guy that's hiring these people. He's not using them, he's not abusing them, he's not taking advantage. And so, he says, start with the last ones hired and then go on to the first ones, the ones hired in the morning. And the workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and they each received a denarius. Okay, what are you thinking if you were hired first and you've worked maybe three times as long as that guy and that guy gets in line and he gets a denarius, what's going on in your mind? I just got a raise, right? I mean, he got a denarius. He only worked like three hours. Um, I've been here all day. By the time the foreman comes down to me, I'm going to get like two at least, right? Because that's what's fair. And so it's amazing. He starts with the last ones, creates an expectation in the minds of the first ones, and goes on down the line. So the workers who were hired about the 11th hour came, and they each received a denarius, generous wages. Verse 10. So when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more but each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. It's not fair. But he answered one of them, friend, am I I not being unfair to, to you? Didn't you agree to work for Denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who has hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And so the last will be first and the first will be last. Okay, now here's the tough part for me. So um, I had kind of a message in my mind and, It's cool. I like when I have a message in my mind during the week and then I don't have to stress on the weekends. So we went skiing yesterday, a bunch of us. And it was really funny because Justin, the new worship pastor, went skiing. And he, Kim was there. um, And he rolled out with flip-flops on. And so we're at Bachelor and there's like five inches of snow and he's stepping out of the car and he's getting frostbite on his toes just trying to get his... Just trying to get his boots on, you know, and there's a funnier part of that story that I won't share just because, you know, he doesn't know all of you yet and it'd probably embarrass him, but um, so we're skiing yesterday and, and everything's rolling along, uh, along just fine and, and, uh, and I'm kind of happy and I've got this, this cool idea of what I want to share and then I come home and uh, last night I'm, I'm kind of thinking it through and all of a sudden I realize that, well, it's the wrong message because it's not what scripture's talking about, it's what I, I just wanted to share So here's a lesson in uh, reading the Bible. The Bible means what it means, not what you want it to mean, okay? It says what the author intended it to say, not how you would want to or choose to apply it in your own life. We've got to understand first what it means to say, and it stinks because that's the principle I have in my life, and that's what I try to teach people, and then all of a sudden you bump into it, and it's like nine o'clock on a Saturday night, and you're like, Crumpling up a sermon and and you're cursing your you know your life and and I, and then and then you take it out on your dog, um, if your dog's named Peaches and is hyper and it's a chick dog. Uh, so here we go. So this is uh, this is the new and improved version as of last night of a message. What is? What do we make of this? Um, and so I want to just digress a bit and talk about parables in general, okay? Because why are there parables? Why are there these stories that are kind of made up? And and they're there because um, sometimes we hear things, but it doesn't communicate much. So I could tell you that, yeah, my legs are tired and my, my shoulders are tired because I skied yesterday. And you're going to go, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, that's right, Sure. Um, but it's not going to mean much to you. You're not going to really experience that along with me if I just give you information. Does that make sense? And so parables are designed to get past kind of that wall we have up, the first person wall that's detached from your first person reality and to to really do it. And, And parables are an art form. It's story, it's narrative, it's poetry, it's It's using language to try to really get deeper and deeper into who you are. That's the value of art. And so it's amazing. C.S. Lewis, who's a little bit of a hero of mine. um, If you've been coming for a year and you've wondered, like, how come every single week there's a C.S. Lewis quote in your bulletin, that's not by accident. We just kind of thought that would be fun. And we just might go for years and years that way because it's kind of fun. But C.S. Lewis did this. It was really interesting. Lewis was an amazing writer, and he was a a literature guy. He taught at Oxford. And English literature was his area. And he would write a book and he would do it kind of nonfiction. And then he would take and he would put it into fiction. Okay, So his uh, surprise by joy was nonfiction about his own story, his own life, his his autobiography of his salvation. And then he wrote a, um, a Pilgrim's Regress, kind of a play on Pilgrim's Progress. And it's this allegory. And he put it into fiction. And later in his life, he writes the book, The Four Loves. And then he writes, Till We Have Faces, which basically takes the thoughts that he had on love, which were some pretty profound thoughts, and he he all of a sudden puts it into a a work of fiction and tries to really drive that whole point home with the idea of love. And he writes... uh, what does he write? He writes The Abolition of Man, and it's all about, hey, wait a second, we, we've gotten rid of any kind of sense of objective morality and objective truth. And then he writes That Hideous Strength, the part of his space trilogy, which really plays that out in kind of um, a story form. And so Lewis would always write a book one way, and then he would write it another way, and he'd put it into an art form. And when he was asked about it, this is what he said. He said, I've learned that if I write a, a book of fiction, I can smuggle theology past the watchful dragons of the mind. Okay, I can smuggle theology. I have good thinking, right and true thinking. I can get it past the defense systems that people have. I can smuggle it past those watchful dragons of the mind and get it into the hearts of people. And that's what's going on with these, these parables. And I, I like what Blake says. And Blake says... um. Uh, We are all, we are ever believing a lie when we see with, not through the eye. Okay? And there's a way of perceiving where it's just kind of black and white and we don't understand the colors and the depth and the hue when we just see with the eye, not through the eye. And parables are that art form that really tries to get at us and they really crystallize the message. And so, a great example because parables are all throughout scripture. A great example is in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you remember the story, uh, David has gone off and he's committed adultery and he's sinned. And Nathan comes in and Nathan is the prophet for Israel at the time and Nathan could have just pointed a bony finger at him and said, "Um, you sinner, and then just pronounced judgment. But instead, Nathan comes in and Nathan tells him this story. And he says this, there were two men in a certain town, One rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. Okay, David had all these women and the the guy, Uriah, had his one wife. And now he raised it and it grew with him and his children. And it shared his food, drank his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. And instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. That's wrong, right? So this is what David does. David burned with anger against the man and said to to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Wow. You know, I mean, if Nathan had just gone in and said, David, you screwed up. David might have been like, you know, shut up, Nathan. Uh, um, Don't talk to me that way. Or or he might have just reacted and and the watchful dragons and the defense mechanisms and all that other stuff that we have going on, right? Because it's always there. Yesterday, I thought I lost my wallet. And I was like already blaming half the people in the group. You know, like, it's your fault because you made me fall. And I think it fell out of my pocket. No, it's my wife's fault because she didn't give it back. And I was just so frustrated that I just started, I mean, I'm, I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one that ever does that. But I think maybe that's how David would have responded. And instead, Nathan shares his story. And all of a sudden, David is able to get the injustice of this type of a scenario. And then Nathan just transfers it and says, that's the scenario that you're in. And it hits him like a ton of bricks. Okay, That's a parable. And so when we're reading this one in Matthew 20, what is Jesus really trying to, to frame for us or crystallize for us or, or get across to us? And it's simply this. The parable is one about the kingdom of heaven and about salvation and about eternal life. And the land the owner is God who goes out and he brings people in to work in his arena. And at the end of the day, which is when we die um, at the end of the age, however you want to put that, um, then there's a payment kind of handed out. And that's salvation. And some of you... I've been a Christian your whole life. Um, others of you aren't a Christian. And um, others of you, who knows, are, are maybe in that dialogue right now with the guy that's trying to pull you into the vineyard. And, and you've been standing around doing nothing. But that's the, that's the dynamic or the relationship that goes on with regards to salvation. Just like in the parable, God goes out and brings people in. And he brings them in to work. Um. And, uh, and it sets up a tension, okay, because he doesn't just bring them into play. If, if Jesus, if, if in this parable it had been written so that it's like the guy goes out and he brings people into play, and then in the 11th hour he brings in people to play for just one hour, and then, uh, and then it's like all over, and at the end of the day, the person that came in first is going to do what? Say, I made out. I had 12 hours of play. He only had one hour of play. I win. But the guy brings him into work. And so because he brings him into work and, and the way we we view work, all of a sudden it's like he had to do less junk than I had to do. It's not fair because we got the same amount of pay. And it sets up this tension. And that tension exists. It existed in my life. When I was in high school, I went to some of those like Sunday night pizza things at, at church and went to some youth group type things. And this was my take on what would happen. They would parade like college kids or people in their 20-somethings or 30-somethings in in front of us. And they would parade them in to give their testimony. Now, Now, here's the people they would get usually would have a good testimony. And what a good testimony meant in that world was they've really screwed their life up really bad and done all these crazy things, and now they're going to come tell you about it. Um, Because it's an interesting story. Um, Somebody that had been working since early maybe wouldn't be a good story. So they find the ones with a good story. So here I am. I'm 16, 17, 18, and I'm sitting there. And there's the guy in front of me saying, "I drank. I did drugs. um, I just lived a wild life. And dude, it was so cool and it was so fun and it was so gnarly, you know. And then I I was 25 and I kind of woke up and realized it was wrong. So. I decided to give my life to God. I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, But learn from me, you give your life to God now instead of when you're like 25 or 30 or 35. Because that's better. Well, what do you think I heard? And I'm not an idiot. Like I read a personality profile myself like a year or two ago and I I was reading my own personality profile and I got an interesting personality. And it says this, it's like, you know, to to people, da, 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 you know, like my personality type, rules are mere suggestions <laughs> to be followed if they make sense, okay? And that's the way I live my life. I'll be driving along, I'll see signs, I'll think, "Huh? Oh, do I agree with that? Mm, no, you know, and, and that's kind of the way I take rules. And and um, and it's not my fault because God gave me my personality and so I wouldn't call it a problem. Um, but when I'm 16, when I'm 17, and I hear this guy tell me how gnarly and cool and fun um, all this wild living was, and then says to me, oh, but but don't do that. You turn your life over to God right now. What do you think I thought? What do you, what do you take me for, an idiot? Why would I give my life over to God now when I can give my life over to God later, like you? I'm going to go have fun now and, and then I'll give my life to God later and, and then I'll get the best of both worlds because that's what you've basically just told me. And, I, and, and when I became a youth pastor, um, I, this kind of thing, like my parents invited this, their senior pastor over for a Thanksgiving dinner and it was like the year I got saved and all this and I came back for Thanksgiving dinner and, you know, and this is Thanksgiving dinner with the pastor and I just started grilling them. What's wrong with you guys? What's wrong with your youth group? Why do you guys tell people stuff like that? Why don't you teach them? And, and I'm just grilling this guy, and I'm like all heated, and you know my family's like, oh, this is embarrassing, you know. And um, but it, it just really angered me, okay? Because a good testimony is this: a good testimony is one that's true. And what's true is why do you think that guy at age 25 stopped doing the wild living? Because it wasn't working. Because that's not where happiness is found. And he learned that. So why didn't he come into those kids and say, you know what? Um, I tried to live wild to have happiness. And it left me so empty that it hurt. That when I was by myself and when I was driving around, all I could think of was how empty I was. How come he didn't say that to the high school kids? He didn't say that to the high school kids because he wanted the high school kids to think he was cool. And if you want high school kids to think you're cool, you got to tell big stories. So there's this whole broken system of dialogue going on, and and nobody ever like would step into it and say, no, truth matters. If someone's going to give their testimony, it needs to be truth, and it needs to, to accurately convey what's really going on, that this is broke and this is better. And the reason you don't make the same mistakes that guy made is because your life is going to get shipwrecked just like that guy's life did. I had a, a, a pastor I knew one time, and the pastor left his wife and had a, an affair and just walked away from it all. And the crazy thing was, was when I was dialoguing with him, um, he didn't say, he wouldn't admit that there was anything wrong or that there's anything a big deal about it. And his reason for, for, for saying that was, look at David. David was a man after God's own heart, and look what he did. And so therefore, I'm kind of in that, and I'm in that category, so um, all's fine. But here's here's how that story continues with Nathan and David. David says this, or Nathan says this to David, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You, stu- you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You stole her. You killed him with the sword. You, you, you had a, her husband killed so that you could steal his wife. Now, therefore... The sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me and you took, a, you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And it goes on. It's pretty graphic. The sword will never depart from your house. See, here's the thing that the people given the testimonies that really screwed up should have been saying. Is I lived freely and I did what was evil on the side of the Lord. And you know what? There's consequences to that. And it was painful. And I hurt. And I was alone. And I was confused. and, And you do not want that. You don't want to have to talk to your kids someday and explain to them what you did when you were younger. You don't want to have to deal with the relational trauma that comes from a life that you lived that was wild earlier on. You don't want to deal with the health issues that come from treating your body a certain way with with alcohol or drugs. You don't want to deal with the friendships that are broken because of the stupid things you did when you were under the influence or when you had no regard for anyone but yourself. You don't want that. You see, what's behind all of this is a a misunderstanding that we have. And I can tell you where the misunderstanding came from me. And I think you could probably trace it back in your life when you really bought the lie, Maybe. It came from me when I was watching Dead Poets Society. Did you guys ever see that movie? Um, I was like in uh, 10th grade. I'm pretty sure it was 10th grade, 10th, 11th grade. And I watched that movie, and I I still love the movie. I just took it the wrong way. And the movie basically says this. It says, um, suck the marrow out of life. Get the most out of life. And then the Latin phrase, carpe diem, seize the day. And I kind of said, yeah, that that really stirs something in me. I want to live life to the fullest. I want to seize the day. And so my mind started working. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to live life to the fullest, then what do I need to do? If If I'm going to live life to the fullest, then I need the most amount of happiness. Okay, so if I need the most amount of happiness, then what do I need to do? Okay, well, then I need the most amount of pleasure. Okay, if I need the most amount of pleasure, then what do I need to do? Ooh, here's where the rub comes in. Um, God's rules seem to get in the way and constrict the pursuit of radical pleasure in all forms, whenever you see it, whenever you find it. Ouch. Okay, decision time. Um, well, that guy that gave the testimony, he just ignored God for a long time. So I, that's my excuse. I will use him as an excuse because... They're putting them up as a role model, so here we go, I'll follow my role model. Okay, so I'm going to ignore God's rules. Let me pursue pleasure at all costs, because then I'll be happy. Then I'll suck the marrow out of life, make the most of what's, you know, each and every day, and that's what living's about. So over here, you, you buy the lie, you make the decision, you say, I'm just, I'm I'm throwing off all restraint, I'm just going for it. That's That's really what's in our gut, isn't it? That if we're going to be happy, then we need to have pleasure, and if we're going to have pleasure, then then a lot of rules and constraints really get in the way. I mean, that's really what we feel in our gut, isn't it? And so here's what I learned after, you know, my stupidity in my life. Okay, was that I had read it all wrong. If I and so here's the equation over here. Uh, the equation is seize the day. Man, life is precious, and God made it precious, and God made it valuable, and God's got big dreams for life. And so seize the day and suck the marrow out of life and make the most of every opportunity, says Paul. And and, and so we're going to go this way. But happiness is a feeling, okay? It's a feeling. It goes up and down, and and it's not steady. You know what we really want, if we're going to enjoy life, what's the root word in enjoy? It's joy, isn't it? Enjoy literally means to take in joy. And so what we really want is joy, not happiness. Joy is a state of being, okay? You can't manipulate joy the way you can't happiness. You can drink plenty of tequila one night and be happy, and then be miserable the next morning. Does that make sense? Joy is the kind of person you are, the, the kind of reputation you have and what's steady and what's lasting and, you, and you're not going to have the highs and lows of happiness, but this is what we're really after. Now, if we want joy, what do we do with pleasure and God's rules over here? Now, here's here's where the, the million dollar shot is. And the million dollar shot is God's rules were designed, were designed to lead you specifically in paths that would maximize your joy and give you the kind of life that God desires for you to have. Because guess what? You are a child of God. And no parent wants his kid to be miserable. So John 15, if you'll turn there quickly. Let me just back up what I'm trying to say here. This is my own testimony that I didn't think I was going to be given. Sweet. Uh, John 15, verse 9. Listen to what Jesus says. I spent a year thinking about this passage when I first got saved. When I read through it, I was like, no way. It was like such a paradigm shift in my life. And so in verse 9 of chapter 15, it says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and I remain in His love, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and so that your joy may be complete. Okay, um, joy is the ball game. Okay, um, and over here of obedience and decision making, Jesus says, "Obey my commands." Why? Obey my commands so that you can remain in my love. And if you remain in my love, guess what? We're united. Now I can give you my joy and I can establish your joy so that it's complete and lacking nothing. And if your joy is complete and lacking nothing so that James or like Paul talks about, we're 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 strong even though we're weak. And James says you can consider your trials pure joy. When you've got an unshakable joy, guess what's going to happen over here with the kind of life that you have? I mean, it's going to shine. And have you ever met those people, when they walk in the room Neil Cole, there he is, there's your example um, when they walk in the room and they just glow, and they make everybody else happier, Have you ever met those people? It's so attractive. When people have joy in their life. And so, so Jesus says, obey my commands so that you can remain in my love. And when you remain in my love, then I can give you my joy. Your joy is complete. And over here, you're just a light and you're shining and it's good and it's winsome and it's attractive and it's the, it's what God wants and it's what you want and it's harmony and it's beautiful. And we're over here doing this stupid decision of going, ooh, God's rules, can't follow those, they get in the way of pleasure, um, so let me throw off God's rules, and I'm going to move further away from God rather than closer, the whole remain in my love thing, I'm going to walk further away rather than being closer to God, and I'm thinking that's going to make me happy and give me the joy in my life that I want and that I think is right and good and that I should have. It is 180 degrees out of sync. And when I got to this point of evaluating in my life, I was like, how did I miss that? And so, of course, because I'm in the habit of blaming people, I started blaming like the Puritans and the fundamentalists that made rules all about rules. And my personality is you don't follow rules unless there's a reason. I'm like, why didn't people ever tell me the reasons? Why did they just slap down do's and don'ts? You know, and make me react to it. Why didn't they explain why God put commands there? He knows us and he loves us and he's communicating with us with street signs and rules and commands and suggestions and encouragement. And he pleads with us um, because he knows that if we follow him, it will go well with us. So you get all the way back to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 18 and you start reading the woes and the blessings and God basically breaks it down and says, I'm trying to be perfectly clear here. If you obey what I say, if you do good in my eyes, I will bless you. If you don't do good in my eyes, you go outside of my commands, break my commands, then, then your life will be cursed, period. Period. The guy giving the testimony to those high schoolers should be saying, guess what? I learned if you break God's commands, your life gets cursed. Ooh, that's a good motivator to turn around and start walking back. You know? Um, so let me be the guy that's taking the dead-end road, that's coming back. You're heading down this road. Eh, you don't want to go down there. There's monsters down there uh, and demons. You're going to have nightmares. Turn around now. Save yourself some time. That's what the guy should have been saying to the high school kids. Instead, he's like, man, dude, I really had some fun down there, down the dead-end road. But... It was was wild and I'm cool and you should respect me and, you know, all this other stuff. And the kid's like, well, then why wouldn't I go down there? We communicate the wrong thing. And it's huge. It is huge. So coming back to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 is a in-your-face lesson that it is about God. Because this parable ends in in verse 16 and it comes out of the parable and applies it. And he says, So just like this story, the last will be first and the first will be last. So just like in this story where the guys that got hired last got paid first, that's the way it's going to be in life. So the people who... Messed around their whole life and get saved at 50 because they've got lung cancer or get saved at 60 because their liver's failing them or get saved at at 70 because all of a sudden something wakes them up and they realize they're lonely or like me, they have their jaw broken when they're 22 um, and, and they get kind of woken up out of it and say, what in the heck's going on? And they start thinking, whatever they get saved, what God is saying, those people there are going to get paid first, and it's going to be the same as the people that had always walked with me. It's the same pay. It's the same pay. Now, if we start over here and say, how do we analyze that from our perspective? We're going to immediately say it's not fair. Because when I work, I deserve pay for my work. So justify to me how you're doing this, okay? Over here is Jesus saying, you know what? You don't deserve anything. Um, you didn't have any money at the start of the day. You don't have salvation before God came into your life. You don't have the means with which to buy it. Um, God gave it to you. And it's all you need, and it's more than enough. And he called you into his home, and he put you with himself. And he's saying, I'm going to give them at the end of the day the same amount I gave you. Why? Because I am gracious. I am good. And you should be celebrating my grace that those people would get the same salvation that you've got. Because I am generous. And when we understand it about God, that's kind of where we end up. And if we're in this parable, he says, remember what he says here? Are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious because I'm generous? So a lot of you have been in church for a long time. So here's the crazy thing about church. Um, It gets one thing right, but it usually takes, church usually takes all the right things, moves them to an extreme, and then burns people out on them. So when you are a Christian, you are meant to serve and you're supposed to work. You've got gifts, you've got talents with which to bless this community, to bless this church, to give back, to help, and you're supposed to work when you're saved and when you're in that family. Now, most churches take that, abuse it, and, to, and suck you dry, so it goes to such an extreme that it's like you get so burned out and your family's getting like killed and, and clobbered and it just sucks you dry. And the interesting thing about Antioch is it's real hard for us to find volunteers because Antioch seems to draw a lot of people that have been abused by church and, and are kind of um, on the other extreme of licking their wounds. Does that make sense? So it's really hard sometimes for Antioch to get volunteers because everybody's been taken advantage of almost. It's crazy. And we get put in this weird pendulum swing and and it confuses us, but the idea is work is where we're supposed to be. It's what's good. But deep in our guts, we don't think that. We think what's good is play. Nietzsche called it the will to power. I call it sin. But we think being autonomous, out from under control, being free to roam around, being a wild stallion, that, that that's the pinnacle of what living is. And when we come into a relationship with God, we're in a subordinate relationship. We're in this like hierarchy, we're in structure, we're confined. And we chafe against that and we think it's less good than if we were a wild stallion. Okay, does that make sense? Well, I'm going to explain it a little bit more in just a second. But are you with me there? If I could be radically free, don't you feel like, well, wouldn't that be better? And that's the same emotion the, the older brother had. So the prodigal son parable. The guy goes off and lives wildly, comes back, dad. the dad throws a party for him. And the older brother that had stayed working hard with the dad says, this is crazy. You've never thrown me a party like that, and now you're throwing him a party like that. It's crazy. And the dad says, I don't get it. He was like dead, and now he's alive. And you have been with me the whole time. You have always had what is best. What is best is not running around wildly and being free. What is best is you being in relationship with me and proximity to me. That's what's best. You've had the pinnacle all along. Don't envy your brother for the, the waste he made of his life. You don't get it. And we live there in this tension of looking at people that are out there sinning. Um, and maybe your marriage is tough. And maybe, maybe finances are tough. Maybe you don't like yourself. and Maybe you don't like your personality. Maybe you don't like your body. Maybe you don't like the circumstances in your life right now. And life gets difficult and we get squeezed and we think, you know what? I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be somewhere else running free, like with a soundtrack playing in the background. But I, I wasn't meant to be here where it's hard or where it's difficult. And we have got to hear Jesus saying, "No, you are right where you're supposed to be." It's cold outside. I heard someone say this week, uh, "The grass might be greener over there, but the water bill's higher." You know, um, we we look at things in little slices, and we like get enamored with like, "Oh, it's so romantic if I could only go there," um, but it's an illusion. Running free outside of the constraints of God's commands is not where you're going to find happiness. Where you're going to find happiness is making peace with it and asking the question, am I where God wants me to be? And if I am, that is all I need. I can be content. I can walk with my head up. I can live my life with the fullness of the knowledge that Jesus can give me all the joy I need. That I'm not going to lack for anything. That my joy will be complete, not lacking anything. And so the older brother didn't really have it right. And we get put in that position and we don't really get it right. And we think that it's out there when it's really right here. Being where God would have you be. In relationship with him. And working. And working. Because isn't that the piece that we misunderstand? If we think work is bad, then we're going to always be repelled by it or think that God is unjust because we're not getting paid more for our work. Um, So I'm here this morning telling you, guess what? You were made to work. You were called into the kingdom of God to work and to serve You are going to truly be who you are when as a piece of the body you're performing the function that that piece of the body is supposed to perform. You're being a hand or a foot or a leg or a ligament. You're doing what you were made to do inside a structure, inside an organization, not running free. Not being alone. The last thing is just this um, because I think it illustrates it. There's I think you can get it for fifty percent off right now, actually, because um, there's a damaged copy. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called *The Great Divorce*, and it's a fictitious look at heaven and hell. Um, and it's I, it's one of my favorite books, and it's amazing the depth of insight that Lewis has into to the mind and how we work. But what's amazing is he sets up a he sets up a dichotomy, he sets up a split here, and, and, and basically moving further into heaven means getting closer to God and being in relationship with God. The further away from God you move, like further into hell, because it's like all in degrees in this book. It's funny, the further you move away, the more isolated and alone you get. And so it's really wild. The, the, the supreme example is Napoleon lives like 100,000 miles or something from anyone else and he just talks to himself all day. He has is, he is, received exactly what he wanted. Um, Lewis kind of took the phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And he said the the principle of hell, he got it from George MacDonald, kind of his mentor. He said the one principle of hell is this, um, my kingdom come, my will be done. It's 180 degrees out. And so hell on Lewis's view was as far away from God and as alone as you can get. And heaven was as close to God and tied into relationship as you can get. Now, the lie I bought into and maybe you're struggling with was that I needed to get away from God so that I could be liberated, so that I could freely pursue pleasure or have what other people had because I was missing out because they had something I didn't have. And so I had to move away from God. And I was approaching hell, not hell like this cool little symbolic thing that you'd hear in like a Billy Graham crusade or whatever, like hell as in I was experiencing it. There's no joy, it's dark, it's away, it's outside, and it was awful. And when I truly got it and started getting on my knees and just chasing hard after God, all of a sudden I had relationship and a lot of hard work ahead of me. And it was sweet and it was wonderful. And there's joy that nobody can take. That's where Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. Whether I have stuff, whether I don't have stuff, I've learned the secret of being content. Because he understood it was relational, and it was being as close to God as you can, because God is a rock, Christ is a foundation, or a strong tower. Okay, all of those, the symbolic language in the Psalms of being something that is a foundation, or, or something solid that you can anchor yourself in. Do not envy the wicked. It is not where you want to be. It is hell. The joy that you want, the meaning in life that you want, the happiness that you want is going to come through me. Not through rejecting me and being wild and disobedient um, and breaking all my rules and commands. I know you. I'm your father. I built you. I designed it. Trust me. And so instead of sitting there in the circumstances we're in and going, man, God owes me more, we have to trust him. I mean, the righteous will not just inherit eternal life by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Your life, if you're really getting it, is going to be lived in faith where you lean on God and you really understand that, you know what? Even if it doesn't feel fair, God is just. He's not going to leave me alone. He's not going to reject me. He's going to make sure I have everything I need. And at the end, I'm going to get it. And I'm going to be brought into that kingdom. I'm going to receive eternal life. God is just no matter what my fairness feelings feel like. The prophet Ezekiel, when he was writing, was writing to the Israelites. When everyone was complaining about, look at all the things happening to us. God isn't just. And God was saying, I am just. You didn't listen to my commands. What you're inheriting right now, all this mess, is because you didn't listen to me, you didn't follow me, you chased your own ways, and now you're going to blame me for it and you can't do that. I'm just. And, and even if you're living righteously and your circumstances are bad, but here's this bad person over here and their circumstances are good and you're like, it's not fair. Look, you know what? Just worry about yourself. I can do with my stuff what I want to do with my stuff. It's mine. It's mine. Just like in the parable, it's my money. I can choose what I'm going to do with that. And there's things that you don't know about. Just like the father knew that the prodigal son didn't have the life that the older son would want, but the older son was still living in this weird kind of a of a, of a view or conception of reality. And the father said, yeah, you haven't gotten it. You, you haven't gotten it. You're right where you need to be. And so wherever you're at this morning and and whatever the things are, we get bombarded with stars in the christian world stars in the real world and we're always thinking that things are deficient we have such an abundance society that we're always thinking it's deficient i don't have i lack and therefore it's not fair because i'm a good person and we're looking at all the wrong things and we're chasing happiness in all the wrong ways and jesus says you know what um You're the older brother, and you think he's first because he got to run away, but he's actually last. And you were last because you didn't run away, but you're actually going to be first. And there's this weird kind of math that's going to happen when the kingdom finally shakes out. And even these people that come back and get saved later in life, you're going to get to see them inherit the same thing you're going to inherit. And when you're no longer thinking about deficiency or lack, you're all going to turn to God and you're going to praise him. And you're going to give him glory because you're going to see and you're going to understand what grace really is and that it really is amazing. Amazing. Because God, it's a fireman's brigade, sees our life burning and says, here's some water. And we take the water, but we don't really understand grace. And so we look at God and we say, oh, amazing grace. Thank you, thank you. This is so amazing. We take the grace and we hoard it. And then when God tries to give grace to this person whose life's burning over there, we say, that's not fair. It's not fair. What we should should have done was seen it from God's perspective. And God sees a life that's burning, a life that's burning, a life that's burning, and he cares about it all. And he loves us because we're closest to him, and we want that salvation. And so we come into the, the work area early in life, and God says, ooh, 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 we get to do this work together. And he hands us a bucket of water, and it's fireman's brigade. And if we really understand amazing grace, how sweet the sound, we take that grace, that water, and we douse it over here. And we get in on the program that God is running. And it begins to change the world. And God is just pouring his grace out and his salvation out. And now all of a sudden we're rejoicing and we're a part of it. And we're just pouring it down this, this path. And we're not just hoarding it and saying, I've got mine, but it's not fair if he gets the same amount as I had.